if you don't know what you want to get, uh, some folks can help direct you as well. So thanks for being with us. Uh, it is good to be back here. It's been a few weeks since I've been here on, on Sunday morning. Um, we got to go to a North American Conference for Acts 29 a couple weeks ago. Immediately following that, I was down in a sister church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Um, lovely Beaufort. It was great to be there, part of their Sunday celebration. Got to preach there, be with their church, and that church joined Acts 29 in our South Carolina area a little over a year ago, and it's been wonderful to partner together. And looking forward to the fruit that God's going to bring through that. And then last Sunday, Todd Perkins and I swapped places, so you got Todd Perkins from East North Church, and I was at East North Church, so it's good to finally be back together with you. Um, it's a joy. This is where I prefer to be. Um, I love being with you and with God's people, and I love it when we get together, and you are a joy to pastor, and I, um, hopefully they won't listen to this. I prefer our church. I, I just do. Um, so I, I think you're a wonderful congregation. You are encouraging, godly, supportive, and, and so many other evidences of God's grace at work in you, and I'm sure that they are in their churches too, but I'm just aware of that in you. So thanks for being the church. Thanks for demonstrating what it means to be the bride, the body of Christ. So turn your Bibles to Judges 7. Judges 7, we're going to read the entire chapter here. This is the follow-on to three weeks ago when we read the account of Gideon, fearful Gideon, how he was continuously fearful. The angel came to him in fear. He continued to fear after the Lord revealed himself to him. And then even after the Lord said, I'm with you, and he knew it was God, he continued to test God. And then now we see his response after he's filled with the Spirit. And this is how Gideon responds and how God uses him. Judges 7. Then Jerubbabal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, you shall, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. <clears throat> so he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lap, putting their hands to their mouths, is 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his own home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go down to the camp against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down... Go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards your heart shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. 
And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the, 300, and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke jars. They held in their left hand the torches, the right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerahah, as far as the borders of Abel Maholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers through all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out. They captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. Then they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb. They killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these accounts of your might. These accounts of your deliverance. God, thank you that you give us this account for our good, and I pray that you would help us see your word. You would help us learn from your Holy Spirit through this word. I pray that you would open up our ears to hear, open up our minds to understand, open up our hearts to receive from you, Lord. And I pray that you would imbue the words that I speak with your Holy Spirit's enabling power. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I, we've talked about what does it mean to be a hero and who was a true hero of the story, but when you think of a hero, what do you think of? Do you think of somebody who's got all kinds of special skills, who has some kind of talents, or maybe you think about the people who are uncommonly gifted? Maybe you think on the reverse about the common person who finds themselves courage, and they look inward and they, they pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and they're brave and they're bold or there's some hidden latent, latent strength that's discovered inside of them or maybe this idea of finding faith in yourself. If you believe in yourself, then you can overcome. Well, that's the message of Hollywood. That's the message of the world around us. If you only believe enough, if you have enough faith, if you believe in yourself enough, if you just are strong enough and bold enough and brave enough and stand up to the bullies, you too can be a hero. But that's not the takeaway of this message on Gideon. The message is not be good enough, be strong enough, pull yourself up on your own bootstraps, find the courage within yourself, find self-determination, find confidence, have, have self-confidence, have more self-esteem. No, that's not what this is all about at all. 
It's not that if you have enough faith like Gideon and the men who remained, or maybe you've heard the message that, well, it's about being wise and observant like those 300 men because they drank from their hands, right? Maybe that was it. You too can be a hero if you only have enough faith or you are somehow observant or you have enough skill. But that's not the message of the passage. The message seems to be that God uses truly weak people. That's what we see. God uses truly weak people so they look to him for true strength and deliverance. And that's what we see that happens in this whole passage is that he's not using strong people in this passage. He uses truly weak people because he wants those truly weak people to find strength in him and experience his deliverance. We already saw in chapter 6 that Gideon was continually timid. He was continually afraid. He, he was found on, on the threshing floor. No, he wasn't out in public. He was in a wine press. He was hiding. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and speaks courage and says, I'll be with you. And Gideon's like, but is it really you if God's really with us? He questions God. He's timid. He's fearful. Even after he sees God turn a rock into fire and consume this huge sacrifice that he makes, Gideon is still fearful and still has to put some fleeces out to make sure that it, God's really going to do, that he's really faithful to his word. And now we see that they're camped with 32,000 men in the army. That's a big army, right? If you saw 32,000 people marching on your house, you would think that's a big army. And ironically, they're camping by the spring of Harad, and that spring, that name means trembling. And so this, this huge army, and it's, it's like the author's trying to get us to see that they came to the spring of trembling. They were drinking from trembling. That's what they were. They were weak people. They were trembling people. And so they come and they see that these, the Midianites, the Malachites, and all the people of these, they joined together. And before we look at verse 2, I want us to, to look at verse 12. So look down your Bibles at verse 12. It says the Midianites, the Malachites, they, they were like, like laying along the valley like locusts. They were just blanketing the whole valley. Their camels were without number. You couldn't count how many camels they had. That view must have been frightening. The enemy forces were so large that it, it looked like there were sand on the seashore. You couldn't count them. Now, I don't know if you ever try to count sand on the seashore, but it's really not possible. And, th and that's what this image is of this massive army of several different nations have gathered together, arrayed against God's people. This is a terrifying scene. You know, when I grew up, I grew up in a small town in, in northwest Virginia, and I, I thought it was a decent-sized town, but our town in the entire county was 30,000 people. And, and every year they gathered together for this apple blossom festival, and it, was, it was, seemed like a daunting number of people. This is 32,000 people, that would be significant force, and yet that's not enough. It's not enough to overcome the Midianites who are like the sand of the sea. And so what you think is going to happen as you're reading this, and you see they're like the sand of the sea, unable to be counted, and their, their camels are too numerous. They're like locusts just blanketing the whole valley. And what you would expect God's advice to be was like, call the rest of Israel. After all, there's only four of the tribes of Israel gathered together to make 32,000. So you think, well, four times three, well, maybe, maybe they could get 120,000 people. Maybe that would match the forces. Maybe that's what Israel needs to do. The problem is Israel's not united enough. But that's not the advice that we see. And really what we see in the first eight verses is, is something that God intends for us to take away. And that's the fact that, that the Lord causes trust 
in his strength by making weak. The Lord causes trust in his strength by making weak. He makes his people weak. And, and that's shocking. Do, do you see what he says? He says in verse 2, he says, the people are too many. Gideon's got to be thinking, well, hang on. Um, did you see all the people out there, God? Like 32,000, maybe we could do that. Maybe we would get some guerrilla warfare going on, hit them in the night, you know, fast, hard, from different angles if they don't see us. Maybe we can wear them down eventually. After all, we're on home turf. And God says, no, there's too many. There's too many. If I were, if I were Gideon, I would have said, come, come again, Lord? <clears throat> did, did I hear you correctly? You know, isn't that kind of what we do when, when, when God removes strength from us, when we encounter enemies and trials and difficulties at times, and we feel weak? And we're like, where, Lord, where are you? Like, I'm weaker. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not feeling strong right now. I'm not feeling empowered. I don't feel like I've got all these people supporting me. I don't feel like I've got the financial wherewithal to endure this challenge I'm facing. I don't, I don't feel strong. And I, I've got a cold. I've got a rough week this week. Lord, didn't you know that? Why do I have a cold now? And we do that in, in all times of life. And, and yet God says, no, it's too many. You're too, too strong on your own. And, and, and the Lord says, Gideon, I want you to know that I, I don't want Israel to have any chance of saying that my own hand has saved me. That's what God's doing in this passage. He doesn't want his people to have any chance of saying that your own hand has saved you. Now, as we, as we look at that, we've got to think, okay, well, what does that mean for us? God doesn't want us to put any trust, any hope, any confidence in our own ability to save ourselves. That's, that's what God's about doing. The Lord didn't want them to think that they were self-sufficient, that they didn't need God. He didn't want them trusting in themselves, their ability, because you know why? Trusting in ourselves, it only leads to more sin. It only leads to self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, and pride. But we can't see that. We want, we want to be stronger. We want... We want to have all these people around us. We want to have a show of strength. We want to see that we're strong enough that we can do this. We want confidence. But trusting in our ability, it turns us either away from God and makes us proud, or trusting in our ability can make us despondent because we see that we can't do it. Either way, trusting in our own ability, in our own hand, is, is not a good thing. And so God removes his people's ability to be their own hero. And sometimes God does that with us too, doesn't he? Sometimes God's merciful to us and he removes our ability to trust in ourselves. Now, we don't interpret that as mercy, do we? I don't find it merciful when finances are tight and I have to trust in God. I don't see that that's actually God turning my heart to him. Sometimes I don't find it merciful when I'm feeling weak and, and down physically and I feel like I don't have strength to go on. I don't see that that's actually God's means to point me to trust in him. But you know, sometimes God's motivated by his love because he knows what's best for us. Sometimes he removes resources or finances or health or relationships or ability. So we don't trust in ourselves. So we won't rely in our own hand to save us. The question is, though, are we relying in our own hand to save us? Where are we trusting in our own hand? Where are we trusting in our own strength, our own ability to save us? The Lord says to Gideon, you still have too many. And so he, he says, hey, tell everybody who's fearful and trembling that they can go away. And so then 22,000 people leave. 
I'd be a little depressed as a leader. If I had 32,000 people follow me, if you were a church of 32,000 people and 22,000 left in an instant, I'd be like, well, that's not successful. Maybe that's a sign of bad leadership. And then I'd start doubting. I'd start to be fearful. But God sends them away. And then those other 10,000 must have wondered, what is going on? Who knows the 22,000 thought? Maybe they thought that, that God was not enough to save them. Maybe they were afraid because they thought there's no way we can do it, so if we can't do it, it's not possible. You ever wonder if God's going to be enough to save you, to rescue you, to sustain you? You ever question God's deliverance? Well, is he, does he really know what's going on? Has he really called me and put me in this difficult situation? Maybe God's closing a door. Right? Isn't that what Christians say? Well, things are getting hard, so God's closing that door. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe God's calling us to fight, trusting in him. These 32,000 people, only 10,000 remained. And and I've heard it taught that, well, these are the 10,000 that God really wanted to use. These are people who truly had faith. So we need to be the object lesson for most stories, most teaching on this passage. The object lesson is be like these men of faith, these 10,000 who had enough faith. But but we know that's not true because God says there are still, still too many. He wasn't approving of their faith or disapproving of their faith. He was saying there's too many people. You know, the idea was, you know, well, if you're fearful, then God doesn't use you. God doesn't need you. Well, that's kind of a problem for the whole Gideon account, isn't it? Because God, God calls and comes to a fearful person at the very beginning. And he continues to come to him, continues to have mercy on him. And then in verse 11, we see God is really gracious, and we'll see that in a minute. He's, he's going to say that, Gideon, you, if you're still afraid, and Gideon doesn't say, oh, yeah, God, no, he just goes. He says, if you're afraid, go down. So these 10,000 fighters, God says, is, is still too many people. And so the Lord says, take them all down to this water, and, and you're gonna, I want them to drink. And he, he gives them this test about kneeling and lapping from the hands. It's not exactly clear. The text is a little ambiguous about who does what, and it kind of gets a little confusing. And, and the reason is, it's not the point. I, I've heard it taught that, well, you know, why God selected those 300 people is because those 300 who lapped, they were wary and they were watchful. And so God was really impressed with them, Right? Or I've heard the reverse, well, those are the guys, maybe it's the guys who went down because they didn't care, they're brave, strong warriors. I've heard it preached both ways, both are wrong. That's not the point of the story. God's, God's just trying to dwindle their numbers so that they can't trust in their numbers. He's giving them the bare minimum required. The point is not that God is, is weeding them down to this faith-filled elite fighting force so we should all be like this faith-filled elite fighting force. You know why? Because then the message would be that if we're strong enough, if we're faith-filled enough, if we're wary enough, if we're watchful enough, attentive enough, then God will use us. And that's, that's exactly the opposite of what this passage is trying to teach. You see, God is wanting to, to make it clear that they can't trust in their ability, that that has nothing to do with their ability at all. That his deliverance, his salvation is all of him. And he's inviting them to come into that and participate in his salvation, but it doesn't depend on them at all. And you know what? I don't care how great these 300 fighters might have been. Maybe, maybe someone's right. They, they were, these were great, like, hardened Marines. But 300 men against, I don't know, 100,000 people? Not a chance. Look what he says in verse 7. 
the Lord says, notice the first person language there. He says, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. He doesn't say, you will save Israel. Now he says, I'll save them. I'll save you. I'll give them. He was going to do what was impossible, what they couldn't do, and the Lord would deliver them. And so with this knowledge, these 300 men, they take the provisions of the, all the other troops they left. I'm guessing they left all these things behind. But notice what it says, uh, this little foreshadowing here. It says they took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sends everybody else home. And at this point, those 300 men were probably like, what are you doing? You're a bad leader. You're stupid. You're making bad decisions. I mean, come on. If I was one of those 300, I'd be like, are you crazy? There's no way this is humanly possible. And that was the point. Why does God do that? Why does God make weak? At times the Lord makes us weak and removes strength and ability because he loves us. Because he doesn't want us to trust in something that's unreliable. Or worse, he doesn't want us to trust in ourselves and see that maybe we can, we're able to to fake it enough till we make it enough, and then we end life not trusting in him when we go to hell. Trusting in ourselves is a false confidence completely, so he offers a better strength than ourselves. What you think you need the most is not what you need, unless it is God. We need his strength. He offers us strength that's found when we find ourselves to be too weak to trust in ourselves. Too weak to save ourselves. Yeah, back when uh, my wife and I started college ministry back in 93-ish, I believe. And uh, it, was, it was going well, kind of. And people would come out every week. We would have these um, alpha kind of like events. We'd invite people to come and ask questions about God. And so we're reaching out. And, and so it seems like there's a groundswell. There's some momentum building. And it was really great. And so we thought, we're going to put on this big event. We're going to call it Catch the Fire. Because in the 90s, that was trending, right? So um, <laughs> it's a dorky name, right? If we said Catch the Fire meeting, I, I think we'd all be a little skeptical today. So we, we set this huge meeting up. We rented this big hall at George Mason, and it would seat several hundred people. And so we got ready. We trained for it in advance, what we would say to all the unbelievers who were going to come and what we were going to do. And we prepped for it, and we bought like 100 pizzas. And we, yeah, it was ridiculous. And so we... <laughs> We got a big band there, and it was rocking, and we got a speaker, and we were ready, and we advertised, and we handed out flyers for like weeks prior, and then here's what happened. No one caught the fire. Almost no one showed up. It was like five people, and they all felt really awkward because there's like 30 of us, and we're all trying to talk to five people. Nothing happened. And then we got really discouraged, and then we prayed, and then we realized, and this is something that happened for each and every one of us, that we realized that, wait a minute, we were trusting in our own strength, our own abilities, our own methods, our own ways of doing things, and God had not called us to do that. We, we were relying on our own strength, so we, you know what we did? We repented, and then we stopped, we listened, we trusted in God, and you, you know what? Then the ministry grew. 
The, the Apostle Paul experienced um, at the height of his ministry. He, he had had visions from God. He had seen the third heaven. He'd be taken up into the third heaven. Whatever that is, I don't exactly know. None of us do right now. And he had seen all these wonderful, incredible things. And then at the height of everything, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul shares what happens to him. You know, at the height of victory and ministry, greatness. Here's what Paul says happened in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He says, so to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. What? Why did God make the great apostle Paul weak? He says, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Wait a minute. That's not good. Why would God allow a messenger from Satan to harass him? Isn't, isn't Paul, doesn't have enough faith for that? He says, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Sometimes God makes weak so that we would trust in his strength, trust in his ability. Gideon must have been terrified. But what we see in verses 9 to 15 is God didn't leave him there in his weaknesses alone. The second thing we see is that the Lord graciously gives faith in weakness. The Lord graciously gives faith in weakness. That night, Gideon's mind is probably racing. I can only imagine it. Put yourself in that position for a moment and think, you've got 32,000 people with you, 22,000 just left. And then God's like, still too many. And now there's 300. And then you're looking down, and there's this insurmountable force, and you can see the little fire lights all throughout the Valley of Jezreel. I, I doubt Gideon slept. Like, you got a big day coming up? Think about Gideon here, right? You think a test is hard? You think that confrontation at work is difficult? This was, this was a little harder. They were facing, on their own, certain death. And he had a lot to sleep, to think about instead of sleeping. So that night, the Lord says to him, did you get that? God comes to him in the darkness when he's afraid, when he's weak. And God calls him. He says, arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. You know, Gideon, he's tempted to fear man and really has good cause to fear man killing him. You know, I imagine all the men were writing goodbye letters to their family. And in Gideon, God tells him, I I'm going to be with you. I've given it into your hand. But did you notice Gideon is still fearful? He was still afraid. But, but God's gracious. He didn't, he didn't make fun of Gideon. He didn't chide him. He didn't even correct him. No, he, he knows he's, he's weak. I, I love the scripture. It says that he, he knows our frame. He knows that we are weak, but that we're, we're just dust. He didn't leave Gideon in his fear. He was gracious and compassionate. Look down what he tells me in verse 10. He says, but if you're afraid to go down, <laughs> but if you're afraid, for real? He knows he is. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp of Pur, your servant. You shall hear, he gives him a prophecy. You shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And Gideon doesn't argue. He doesn't say anything. The next thing we just see is Gideon's going down, right? Because he's afraid. He's afraid. God says, if you're afraid, go down. So Gideon's like, oh, I'm there. And he goes down. He goes down the camp in the dark of night. 
He was obeying God, but he's still afraid. And so he sneaks out into the vast camp with the servant to hear what they had to say because his hands needed strengthening. And here's the crazy thing. He hears two enemy soldiers talking. And when he gets there, he says, one of them is dreaming a dream. And he says, you know, behold, a cake of barley bread. Now, I don't, I don't know what a cake of barley bread would look like, so I, I brought a bagel. Um, it's not made of barley. I think it's made of wheat. But a bagel's not really impressive, right? A bagel is small. It is soft. It is not a weapon of war. If you, somebody tossed you a bagel and said, let's go to battle, you'd be like, for what? With what? And like, with the bagel, right? But, and it, but it's soft. It's not even hard. It's not even, it's not even a stale bagel. <laughs> you know, it's not a, it's got nothing good about it. You know, it's like, you know, you can eat it. And so, sorry, I probably shouldn't have done that. Um, <laughs> but that's the whole point. A bagel's easily consumed. It's not threatening. Have you ever been threatened by barley cake or a bagel? No. Shema's like, come here, man, I'm going to, you know, I can just imagine. And then he says he has his dream. And a, and a cake of barley bread's rolling down into the camp of Midian. Now I'm distracted because that's a good bagel. And um, this bagel, I mean, this, this, barley, this barley bread loaf, it rolls into this tent. And so these were army tents that were set up. They were strong. They were secure. It says it rolls in this army tent, and it strikes a tent, and the tent flops upside down. What an absurd scene, right? And so now the tent is flattened by this, by this little loaf of, of bread. And, and here's an even more absurd interpretation, at least you would think. His comrades are like, well, that's no other than the sword of Gideon. That's no other than the sword of Gideon, that loaf of small barley bread. The son of Joash, a man of Israel, God has given his hand into his hand Midian and all the camp. That idea would be just as absurd for those soldiers to think on their own as a, a, a piece of bread rolling and crushing a tent. And yet God had put that dream into that guy's mind at just the right moment. And then Gideon just happens to go down to the only place that these two men were out of, I don't know, 100,000 people, however many there were there. You ever try finding somebody in that small? And, and so Gideon just happens to go down, and he just happens to not be dis discovered or detected. He just happens to hear the person that God put this dream in their head. He just happens to hear the interpretation that's going to give him all the courage he needs. You see, God had been at work sovereignly preparing ahead of time. God already knew what was going to happen. God already knew Gideon would be weak. God already knew Gideon would be fearful. And God had already put it in that guy's head to have that dream. And he already put it in his comrade's head to have that interpretation. He had already prepared a way because God knows our weaknesses. He knows that we are weak, that we're just like dust. But he desires to give strength. And he wanted to show Gideon that he was sovereignly working. I don't know that, that the interpretation was as impressive. But Gideon must have been impressed by, I can't believe the one place I went, this was the dream, that was the interpretation, I serve a sovereign God. He planned the timing perfectly, just loudly enough for Gideon to hear at just the right moment, just the right tent, just the right place. Why? Because God cares about his servant who's weak. He wanted to give Gideon courage. He wanted to impart faith in God. You know, for us today, that's why we have God's word. God's given his prophetic word. And he's given it to us, and he gives us his word so that in those moments when we are weak, we can go and 
and hear from him and find courage. He's given his words filled with account after account of men and women who God's delivered, prophecy after prophecy fulfilled, time after time testifying to his faithfulness to save and to use people who are small and weak, like a bagel. All we have to do is open up his word and hear accounts like the one of Gideon, that God is the one who was mighty to save. In Israel's darkest hour, the prophet Isaiah was writing about in Isaiah 40, and Israel was weak. So in Isaiah 40, verse 6, he says, A voice cries, says, Cry. And I say, What shall I cry? He says, All flesh is grass, and all is beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our Lord will stand forever. Then he goes on to talk about the weaknesses of God's people and yet the strength of God. And so then, in, in verse 27 of Isaiah 40, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? Why are you acting like God doesn't see you? is what he says, and that God's disregarding me. In verse 28, he says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up like wings, like eagles, and run and not be weary. They shall walk and not fade. And that is what Gideon experienced. And he hears this dream and he's, he worships. It's God, you're true to your word. God, you're sovereign. God, you know the beginning from the end. God, you knew this. God, thank you that, Lord, you will give Midian into our hands. So he tells him, rise, get up. The Lord's given the host of Midian into your hand. He doesn't say, get up because we can do this. He doesn't say, um, get up, God's going to make you strong enough to overcome. No, he says, get up. God's going to give Midian into our hands. And so that's why we see what they did. The third, third truth that we see is that the Lord brings his mighty deliverance through the weak. The Lord brings mighty deliverance through weakness. That's what he does. Isn't that what God always does, though? We like to think that God brings deliverance through our strength. And yet, no, God doesn't bring deliverance through our strength. He brings deliverance through weakness. Gideon separates these, these men into three different companies, Notice it doesn't mention any weapons. Maybe they had a sword strap to the side, I don't know, but it doesn't mention any weapons because that's not what they're, they're called to do. He says he puts a trumpet in their right hand. He, he puts a torch with a jar covering it so that it, it shields their way as they go so they don't, they don't discover it away. He says, watch and do what I do. And so he says, when it's time, you're all going to smash these jars hold the torch below the trumpet, and then shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And by the way, the, the, the literal language there, it's, it's really best to read that as in the sense of ownership for the Lord, as in belonging to the Lord. So they're shouting that, that this belongs to the Lord and to Gideon. And it, it, did you notice it doesn't take special skills to do any of those things, right? Breaking jars is not hard. Like my family, we break stuff all the time at home accidentally, but we it's not hard to break stuff. They're called to, to, to break a jar, to hold a torch, and to blow a trumpet. Anybody can do that. It doesn't require battle-hardened Marines. So we see this just what they did. And so in the darkest hour, they go down to the outskirts of the camp, they surround it, and they blow these trumpets, they smash the jars, they hold the torches up, and they all cry out for the Lord or belonging to the Lord and for Gideon. And, and check this out. Look in verse 21. Look at how they fought. 
Look at verse 21. They didn't. They didn't fight. So the message isn't be strong enough and God will use you to fight against your enemies. No. Trust in God. He'll fight your enemies. Look at verse 21. Every man stood in his place. So they got a torch, they got a trumpet, and they're standing there. Standing there does not require special training, except maybe to not run away when these guys are all killing each other. The army runs, they they flee, the enemy flees. They cry out, they scream, they flee away when these Israelites blow the trumpets and they see the light and they hear the commotion. And God routes this enemy that's too great a force for them that they could, they could never hope to beat on their own. And they fled these men standing there holding torches and blowing trumpets. And so then we see that the Gideon kind of calls out some people to wrap things up, to mop things up. And the account ends with the heads of the leaders being brought back to Gideon. That's really gory. But what that's representative of us is their authority has been completely removed. Their power is completely gone. The enemy is completely defeated, even if the whole troops have to be mopped up. We're going to see in the first part of chapter 8 that they still have to carry out those mop-up operations. But, but the heads have been cut off. The enemy has been defeated. This isn't about having enough faith to rescue ourselves or finding strength or courage or bravery. No, God's the mighty warrior. He's the one who quells his enemy, who removes their authority, who takes away their power. He graciously gives us faith in his word. This is about trusting him to save us. Just like he promised in Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, 8 says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth. If God is, if you are following Jesus, if you have placed your faith in him, the truth is God's just chosen you from the ends of the earth. He's called you. From the farthest corner, saying to you, You, my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. He doesn't say fear not because you can have enough faith, you can be strong enough. No, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. The God who kills 100,000 men. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The Lord brings his deliverance through weakness. Isn't that what our salvation is based on too? God uses what appears weak to the world to display his strength. God didn't say you have to be good enough to become a Christian. Or if you become a Christian, you have to be good enough to keep yourself as a Christian. You have to be strong enough. No, he says you could never be good enough. You could never be strong enough. And I don't want you trusting in your strength. I don't want you trusting in your ability. And so he sent his son in weakness to become a baby, the weakest state of humanity. And to live a life not of recognition, not where he was worshipped, but no, here he's humiliated and mocked and where he was humbled, where he was rejected by his own family. He wasn't even able to do miracles in his own hometown because of their unbelief. The people, his own people tried to stone him, and eventually the religious leaders that were supposed to be leading the religion about him, they betrayed him and killed him. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was made so weak that he couldn't even carry his own cross. He hung weakly on a tree until he was too weak to live. And he suffered and he died as a curse for us. 
and weakness and disgrace and shame. But God used his ultimate weakness for our ultimate strength, for our ultimate deliverance. And it begins with acknowledging our weakness, our inability. And, and, and here's the thing. God will do whatever is necessary to remove our trust in ourselves so we trust in his deliverance. Because we, we have to die and count ourselves as nothing to be resurrected by faith to his new life. And God brings deliverance from an overwhelming enemy of our sin, the overwhelming enemy that we fight against, that we wrestle against principalities and powers and darkness of the devil. And he delivers us then, not when we're good enough and strong enough, but when we just resist him standing firm in faith in God. Our hope's not in our strength, but in his deliverance. And he uses our small response of faith to bring great deliverance through him. That's what this passage is about. This passage is all about trusting in God and his ability to deliver. So let's do that together. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you desire to encourage us with your strength, with your ability, with your might. You desire to give us fresh faith in you. God, I pray that you would do that even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we dismiss, um, as a reminder of our weakness and how this isn't really a weapon, we've got bagels for you in the lobby. So I'm not kidding. We've got tons of bagels for you in the lobby. Um, enjoy them. Participate in them. And when you take a bite, realize this is not a weapon that's meant to remind us we need his strength. So... Thanks be to God for this opportunity to gather together. Go in the grace of God. You're dismissed.